What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. I'm Lior Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome back to Filmography, a Consequence Podcast Network production. I'm Dominic Suzanne Mayer. I'm the film and television editor at Consequence of Sound, as well as the host of this particular podcast program. We are now in our fourth week out of five discussing the filmography of Tim Burton. And with that, I'd like to introduce my guests for this episode. I'm Samantha Kuykendall, a constant contributor to the Fifth Dimension podcast, a Twilight Zone podcast. Ooh, spooky. Yeah, pretty spooky. I'm here for my second episode of filmography, and I'm super excited to be here with you guys. I'm Editor-in-Chief Mike Rothman, and I'm uh, also a constant contributor to the Fifth Dimension podcast, in addition to The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast, and Halloweenies, a Freddy Krueger podcast, and often you hear me on Consequence of the Sound podcast, and all these other podcasts that we have on this mm. this channel. So, very exciting. Uh, and this is my uh, second appearance as well, because I appeared on the first episode with you. So it's uh, very excited to talk about my favorite Tim Burton movies today. As always, you can leave us a review and follow us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Podchaser, or wherever else you find your podcasts. And we also want to thank Sadie and the Stark for their song Apocalypse, which is the theme song of this season of filmography. You can check out more of their recordings at soundcloud.com slash Sadie and the Stark. This is our fourth week of our Tim Burton discussion. We're getting into the home stretch here on filmography, but there is plenty to touch upon yet. As such, this week we're going to be talking Burton pop, as seen through the films Batman from 1989, 1992's direct sequel Batman Returns, 1996's Mars Attacks, 
and 2001's Planet of the Apes. Not to be confused with the remake, the other remake, or the other other remake. (laughs) But we'll get to that in due time. In terms of talking about Pop Burton, you know, I don't have to give a lot of preamble at this point in the season because we've already kind of established what Burton's pop cultural interests are as a filmmaker, what are the things that draws him visually, you know. What I want to jump into this week is that while Burton has always been kind of a household name, what we're going to discuss this week, as seen through those aforementioned four films, are going to be some of his most targeted stabs at grand-scale, big-budget Hollywood entertainment, especially among a filmography full of the same. So I want to open it up to the two of you to discuss what do his attempts at a big Hollywood production say about Burton? I think the key word is subversion. You know, I, I think that he's always trying to zag left when everyone else in Hollywood is zagging right. Um, not even zagging right, just turning right. I think that that's always been his norm. He's always, you know, we talked about in the first episode that he likes to find the fantasies in reality. He doesn't really like to operate in reality. He likes to kind of um, pull pull us into the shadows of reality, into the, the fantastical elements of reality. And I think these four films, even something like Planet of the Apes, um, to a much lesser degree than the, the other three films, they they have that attempt to just kind of flip the coin on what we you know expect you know like what do we expect in a science fiction film like mars attacks clearly not that movie uh what do we expect from a batman movie going into a batman movie in 1989 when all we knew was adam west and you know if you weren't following along with the comics and didn't know about the killing joke and you know in the dark knight returns like would you expect his 89 incarnation probably not you know i think that's always been the expectation with burton one of the reasons why even on a mainstream level um before he became the sort of hot topic mainstream as i had mentioned joked around with in the first episode there was always this expectation that he's going to do something to kind of flip the script a little bit well and that's why i think the joker was such a perfect character for him to do because he's this crazy character and i read this online that uh, tim burton had said Insanity is in some scary way the most freedom you can have because you're not bound by the laws of society. So I feel like he knew that this character was just bonkers, batshit crazy. He, he could do whatever he wanted with him and it wouldn't have been a stretch, mm-hmm. you know? So it's not like it was a really grounded character. And I think for Tim Burton, that's not something he can really have. I think he does better with kind of these outlandish characters. Well, and I think that brings up a really good point about Burton's approach to pop filmmaking in general, where, you know, he's interested in pushing these properties and kind of dragging them into his own realm. And we've already talked a lot about how, you know, that can go either way. I mean, we spent enough time last week bagging on Alice in Wonderland, for instance. But in the case of these movies, you have some really interesting and almost uniformly compelling examples of Burton taking an established property in from one set of source material or another mm-hmm. and turning it into a Tim Burton film, very yeah. specifically. Mm-hmm. And I think that's w- always has been his appeal. Even when he's doing his... I mean, obviously, you get to start off with something like Pee Wee, which is kind of a weird movie for him to start off with because it's not technically his own. So from the very... You know, from the get-go, he was kind of already subverting and kind of basically distilling like source material into his own sort of weird world 
Um, and then by the time we get to like Beetlejuice, we get to actually see what that means, you know? So if anything, I think you proved my point that he excels with these kind of crazy characters. Like Pee Wee is kind of, he's not a grounded character. He has his own little world that he lives in. And that's one of my favorite Tim Burton films. So I just, I think that when he is given a character that he can expand and do whatever he wants with, he he does a lot better than, say, like Mark Wahlberg's character in Planet of the Apes, which like didn't have a lot of depth and he couldn't really do a lot with him. So I think when he has these, like even Michael Keaton's Beetlejuice, he's insane, you know? So I just think that these characters, like even the Penguin is definitely a character like that, that he can do, he can mold it to how he wants it to be. I think it goes back to the idea that he can pull the, the fantastical and the sensational through this sort of what we expect, the, our expectations. I think he's just kind of like the trickster in that way. Like he wants to to make you like say wow and also kind of cringe and 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 just feel uncomfortable at all times. Maybe not all times, but he wants to have this like mix of like feeling uncomfortable and yet also uh, feeling removed, disassociated from 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 reality, from the traditional forms of narrative. And I think that's when he is at his best. And I think that you know, not to jump ahead too far into like his later career, but like I think the reason why he lost that, you know, as you've explored in past episodes already, is because he didn't have to do the homework or the, the legwork to, to to find that anymore. Well, and I think there was a point where, you know, people knew the style they were paying for roughly when they heard the words Tim Burton, whereas a lot of the films we're discussing today and even the latest film of them in 2001, these are going to be movies where Burton is still very, very much, you know, feeling out his style and kind of establishing and cementing his style within the public consciousness. Yeah. Oh, of course. I mean, I think especially with something like Batman and Batman Returns. I think Batman Returns, honestly, is the one where people actually start un- realizing like what a Burton aesthetic is. Um, because by then, you know, as you had mentioned uh, when we were watching it, like he had already done Edward Scissorhands. He had already done, you know, Beetlejuice. By then, I think that's like almost like his like peak point of becoming you know burton with a capital b i don't really get that so much with like 89's batman as much because i still think he's towing the line between being almost like the closest he's been to like a studio company man um at that at this point in his you know obviously in his career because because if you think about it he's pretty restrained in the original batman than than he is in batman returns even though how crazy and wild that movie is with its dark deco its prints its garish colors of the 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 greens and the purples and the yellows and well i think the most tim burton scene in the whole movie is when the joker goes into the art gallery yeah and they just start like throwing paint on all the paintings because it's that like really bright green and those really bright pinks so it's the most like pop art Yes, and you're going to see that in a lot of the movies we're discussing tonight because Burton starts to really put together what his look is, which is, as we've talked about in past episodes again, you know, this mixture of like mid-century modern design and kitsch from the 1940s to 60s and just this riot of textures and looks and colors that feel simultaneously outdated and yet kind of perfect in the way he places them in context Mm -hmm. and you know if we're gonna talk about that i suppose that's a really good way to just jump into 1989's batman you know what happened to this guy jack well made mistakes 
Then he had us. Now you want to get nuts? Come on. Let's get nuts. Tell me something, my friend. You ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? What? I always ask that of all my prey. I just like the sound. Which, in the case of Batman, you have Burton coming off the twin successes of Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice, again with Warner Brothers, and he is given the keys to the kingdom in as much as he's tasked with directing what is going to be one of their biggest potential franchises in an era where, you know, franchises existed, but we weren't trying to turn every single movie into one quite yet. And in the case of Batman, the thing that really grabs me is just that and, and Mike, again, we discussed this when watching the Batman films together before this taping, but this is a movie that does not feel like it's chasing a sequel, even as no. it was probably meant to do so. Just It feels completed, especially at the end when they kill their main villain. Usually movies that want to create a franchise don't typically do that or if they do they'll do like a slight nod at the end of like did he like maybe he winked or you know something moved on him or he blinked to show that he's still alive because in most movies that we've seen it's not just like the the villain will usually carry over I mean especially if you're going into the Marvel universe like we see the same villains over and over again this movie it has the Joker and at the end of the movie the Joker is dead and we do not see him in the next one. No, I mean it takes, you know, it, it takes great strides to be as uniform and as tight knit as possible. I mean it literally solves, you know, it 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 basically uses the origin story to solve the crux of uh, of Batman's inner crisis and by the end of it he's solved it. I mean he gets the girl, he becomes the hero of the town and he stands there triumphantly. Like at that point, we could walk away and it's fine. And I think that's what Tim Burton felt like as well. When Going back to the origin story, this is like the first superhero film that, especially like in the last, you know, coming from a world where we now live in, a superhero film comes out every year. We didn't see an origin story for him. They just kind of like nod to it with the, the kid in the um, alleyway with his parents getting robbed. And when we were watching it, because I had never seen it, and when we were watching it, I was like, oh, here we go. Here's the origin story. And I thought that was Bruce Wayne with his parents. But then you see that he's, it's just a, kid you know decades later and so it's just a slight nod to the origin story that we're all familiar with without them like completely redoing it we, we all know yeah. it it's not Zack snyder staging it in slow motion over mm -hmm. several minutes of screen time for instance it trusts and it's interesting to have a movie trust audience knowledge this much at this point because this was back at a time when again the blockbuster filmmaking model by and large even as late as even as relatively recently as the late 80s you know it wasn't attuned to this idea of movies not just being a movie but the beginning of a 10 year sequence of movies mm -hmm. setting a movie up for a direct sequel was still bordered on hubristic at this point yeah and honestly it was it, it, we're also dealing with a, an era where comic books weren't as like rampant and mainstream as they are today you know it was a very niche culture and for them to actually kind of, you know, subvert the audience in that way in the beginning with just kind of having the, um, you know, the this random family that you might actually think could be, you know, his the family. family. Yeah, I thought that. It's kind of smart. It's kind of interesting. And it's, it's really weird because not everyone 
is familiar with the Batman lore at this point. I, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I, maybe they are. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just imagining at a time when, you know, not everyone was super familiar with comic books because they couldn't just log on to Wikipedia and read about them for like, you know, a couple of nights or, you know, you really had to go to the store and actually find and dig through crates and look through the, the, the origin lore, unless you, you know, were a devout fan of the Adam West serials. I, I just can't imagine people knew too much about the Batman lore like they would today where you walk out of a theater and go, well, actually it's more like, you know, that was like a, a lot like issue 122, but it wasn't, you know, they kind of forbade all these details. And it's just, that's well, exactly. The script trusts us. It's not mm-hmm. like, you know, us getting a Spider-Man movie every five years with a new actor and we have to see Uncle Ben die all over again every time. You could tell that the writers are like, okay, the people who are going to go see this movie are probably fans of the franchise. And if they're not, They'll get it. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's okay. And it, it didn't feel, like, overzealous. They didn't have to, like, shove it down our throats. It was a nice, subtle nod to the fans, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, and if you look back at the time, this was kind of one of the er-examples of blockbuster movies in the modern era, you know, taking over the culture. You had the hot tie-in soundtrack, which has now <laughs> sold 11 million copies and counting to this day. You had, you know, the endless toy tie-ins. You had the movie itself, which was a massive event in the middle of June 1989. This was the beginning of really what we understand to be the modern wave of blockbusters where, you know, studios preordained a couple movies a year. This was around the time we started building entire film releases around a release date first and everything else a distant second. It wasn't an epidemic the way it is today where that logic literally destroys production sometimes, but this is when that was beginning to mount. And then boomeranging back around to Burton then in particular, Burton is coming off of Beetlejuice and uses his accrued cloud at Warner Brothers to put together a movie that is almost defiantly a Tim Burton Batman movie. Well, and this probably was like, I mean, not probably, it was a cultural phenomenon. Think of it. It was. We we have only seen Superman brought to the big screen at this point, as far as comic book heroes go. I mean, I think we've seen the Hulk, but that was a television series. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's those like disreputable Captain America and Fantastic Four from Roger Corman back in the day. Nothing to this caliber, you know? This this was, as someone who was literally there opening, like opening night. Um, I was only five years old at the time, but I vividly remember it's one of the first blockbusters. We were talking about this on Saturday yeah. and watching it. So this is one of the first memories I have of actually going to see a blockbuster in theaters. Now, I'd seen like big movies. I'd seen like Beverly Hills Cop and all, but this was like a different type of blockbuster and you could feel it and you could see it. You could sense the, in hindsight and in, in reading about the context of the movie, especially it, it was like kind of like the, uh, the next coming of Star Wars in a way. Because the way that Warner Brothers marketed this was it became a lifestyle brand. It was almost like, you know, like in, in the movie Ghostbusters, when you see like people on the streets, like wearing the shirts that have the Ghostbusters symbol. That's what happened that summer. Like that Batman shirt was huge. And I vividly remember walking out of Galleria Theaters, which is now gone in Fort Lauderdale, and they were passing out. They had studio reps passing out uh, like like um, pamphlets where you can order like merchandise and you can get like this jacket that Bob Kane wore and you could buy the Batcave and you could buy all these figures. And they were so like ready for this, like the iconography to, to sell and to make all this big, huge blockbuster money for them that they literally had it ready for you to order like with a toll free number or whatever that you had. 
And I just remember like the only figure they actually had at the time was like the actual Batman. Everything else was like a redux of like the old seventies or sixties figures. Well, can you even remember the last time people like made sure to go to McDonald's so they could get the toys from a movie? I mean, yeah, I mean, well, that's, and that was with, uh, I I think, I think that was with returns, but like it's, it kickstarted that whole trend. But still, yeah. I mean, like like, people were making sure to get the merchandise to this. Yeah. So it was, it it was the kind of this like last gasp of, the the sort of 80s marketing and merchandising that went right into the 90s and kind of defined how the summer blockbuster was going to be. And I was going to say, because if I wouldn't disagree with Last Gasp for the 80s necessarily, you know, that was a trend that continued into the 90s and would come to define it because, you know, we're still, well, that's what I mean. yeah, we're still yeah. predating things like the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie by about five years at yeah. this stage, yeah. among other things. And I do think that's an interesting way to bring up another thing I wanted to discuss, which is... Batman, in a lot of ways, is reflective of what superhero movies would become in the long run. Mm -hmm. Because if we're going to talk about this as, you know, a defining work of the American superhero movie, which I think we'd agree we can, you know, this is not only, Samantha, to your point, that it streamlined the origin story in a way where it was digestible for fans and non-fans alike. You also had a villain so magnetic and so compelling that the villain is something you leave the film talking about just as much as the protagonist. You had a score that would go on to define the sound of Batman for Mm -hmm. an entire decade following. And you had, again, Mike, as you mentioned, you know, this beginning of the superhero movie and in general, the summer blockbuster as multi-million dollar industry unto itself. Yeah. Well, I think you like made a good point about Jack Nicholson's character, about how like people were leaving talking more about the antagonist than the protagonist. And I completely agree. Michael Keaton is kind of not that he's forgettable, but he is totally outshined by Jack Nicholson's performance. I mean, he I I was reading online and I guess Jack Nicholson made $60 million for that movie, which is like one of the highest paid actors ever for a film. And let that be known between him and Robert Downey Jr. for Iron Man. This is why when someone offers you either a big upfront contract or the back end deal, you always, always take the back end deal. Well, and he's a part of his contract, I guess, was he was like, I want to do whatever I want with this character, basically. And I want to choose what I look like. I want to say what i say you know so i think he he had creative control of the character and it paid off it it goes to show that he's fucking amazing it was like i couldn't take my eyes off of him when we were watching it i i love i love nicholson in this movie but the 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 thing that's interesting when you look back in 90s comic book uh movies versus today one of the biggest complaints that you have with the the modern comic book movie or modern comic, or the modern superhero movie is the lack of like a, a compelling villain, and that wasn't the case in the nineties. In, in fact, you could almost make the argument that it was it wasn't like that there was a lack of a compelling hero. There just wasn't. To your point, uh, Sammy, there wasn't a focus of on the on the hero as much as the villain because the villain was the one that was going to be that you kind of had to root against, and so I, it was just this like. And I th- this movie particularly does it because Nicholson is the bigger banner name. I mean, he's literally billed above Keaton in this movie. That's insane. Um, yeah, I mean, can, I can't think of another movie where the villain had got paid more than, than the protagonist, it, than the hero. But it kicked off a trend, at least especially for these Batman movies, um, that 
that was the, the the main discussion. Like I remember buying Cinescape magazine or whatever it was in the nineties. And they were always talking about who was going to be the next big star to play the villains in like the next Batman. And that was like always, the and discussion. we still do that. That's st- yeah. that is still the discussion. I mean, I look forward to knowing who's going to play a villain always. That's, I, that's more exciting to me than, true, than who's being the hero, but, but not exactly anymore. Like we actually found, I feel like it's more about who the hell is going to be playing, which like comic book character. Cause we know that character is going to be recurring in the next, in, in the next movie. And, it, and I was going to say, if nothing else, you know, this is also an era when, I mean, don't get me wrong. The Marvel stars are making disgusting amounts of money for those movies enough <laughs> to justify the infinite press round of being in Marvel movies. I suppose. I don't know if there is a like dollar value you can put on that, but <laughs> another discussion for another time. In the case of Batman, you know, especially with the nineties movies with Burton's two films and then the two Joel Schumacher movies that followed the villains were the big story in every film following this one, you know, like, Batman Returns had Catwoman and the Penguin. Batman Forever had Jim Carrey at the very height of his popularity alongside Tommy Lee Jones. And even Batman and Robin, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger made, I believe it was $20 million for playing Mr. Freeze in that movie, Holy which shit. is incredible. Yeah. The, planet, the planet Hollywood of Batman movies, basically. Well, yeah. I think it's because the the hero, for the most part, always stays the same. So we're not looking for the casting of the hero every time, whereas it's a different villain every movie. So every time a new movie comes out, it's a different actor for a new villain. And I think that makes it more interesting. It's more fun that way. Yeah, and especially when you have a villain that is setting the tone for an entire mm-hmm. franchise, the way that Nicholson does he here totally in does. particular, you know, you're excited to see who is going to try to fit within the world that he helped create. Because this is a very interesting take on the Joker, among other things, because in Burton's hands, the Joker becomes very much an agent of chaos in the way that Christopher Nolan would go on to explore with Heath Ledger years later nearly 20 years later, which is wild. But in the case of Nicholson's Joker, you are shown exactly how he is made the way he is, Mm -hmm. which I think is a big key to how unnerving he winds up being. Because with Heath Ledger, you know, the shifting origin story is an iconic piece of villain storytelling because it disorients you from the sense of, oh, this is what made them that way. Batman is unnerving is that in that it shows you who the Joker was before he was the Joker, which even a lot of Joker stories don't do. Then it shows you how he became the Joker and then it shows him existing as the Joker. And you don't, a lot of Batman stories do not give you that entire progression. Well, for, I made that exact point when we were watching it on Saturday. I was like, I think this is the first time I've ever seen a Joker origin. And although it's not the same origin story from the comic books, I still think it works. I really enjoyed being able to see that. Like when they go into that um, warehouse or wherever they're at and you could see the like green goo, that neon green goo coming um, out of the vats. I was like, okay, here we go. We're getting the origin story. And it was awesome. I loved it. It was so cool to see because it makes it gives that character a little bit more depth. We care about them a little bit more because we've seen where they've started and now we've seen where they're ultimately going. So uh, well, actually it's a from a, it's the Red Hood origin story uh, involving the Joker. Um, All right. But no, I, I, the table. <laughs> this is this goes right back into beauty comments. This goes right back into the earlier discussion we were with when we were talking about the overall arc of of um you know Burton's like Hollywood films is that 
the fact that he took this source material and rearranged it for his own, you know, his own story, which to be fair is, um, you could credit this to, I think 30 different writers because there is so many goddamn rewrites in this, uh, screenplay, but, um, from, you know, Sam Hamm and, uh, Warren Skarin were the original, the, the ones that were actually credited on this story. Uh, but you know, there's, and there's, again there's so many writers that the, the history of the, the writers for these scripts actually you can make a great documentary on just like the batman writers in general over the years uh including the nolan one but um with what i love about this is that this is burton's batman like when when he says like when it's you know it says you know batman or batman like obviously with batman returns and we'll get to that in a second but but with this this is his fucking version like this is his thing and like that kind of goes back into what burton set out to do as a filmmaker like he wanted to make his own versions of stories and that's something that we kind of talked about um in the in the in the first episode too but especially with these with these films like this is he wants to put his burton stamp on this source material and that's what he does I do mean, you guys have six flags here in yeah, the midwest we do, okay yes. <laughs> um well when i was a kid i would go to six flags a lot and mm-hmm. the six flags uh theme park is all like superhero dc superhero yeah. uh characters and they had this really cool like jet ski um like show but it was all batman and it was totally tim burton like themed batman and yeah. so he like his influence of this film went on to like theme parks you know it was a whole aesthetic yeah. and um, I remember having not even seen the films, obviously, until recently when we watched them. And when we were watching them, I was like, oh, God, this reminds me of like Summers at Six Flags because it's that the same feel. Well, and it's interesting you mentioned that because I had not watched the original Batman in years, probably since I was in the single digits, truthfully. And I was really arrested while revisiting it by how much of it I distinctly remembered. And, you know, some of that is just like the collective pop cultural consciousness. And mm-hmm. you see certain images from a movie so often they become iconic. Nicholson's Joker is a great example mm-hmm. of that, I think. But it also speaks to just how indelible a lot of the imagery in the film really is. Um, the guy who did the set design was Bo Welch, and he cites fascist architecture for his influence of how Gotham City looked. And I thought that was really interesting because it does, it looks like dark and bizarre kind of styled designs and like harsh angles. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels kind of like grisly, you know? So Yes, and especially, you know... To an end, we'll get into that in the second half of the show when we discuss the technical facets, but I will say there is definitely this vibe of German expressionism that hangs over both of the Burton Batman movies. I mean, just think of the huge, giant, monolithic statues that kind of dominate the city's presence. Like, it's just, it's fucking unreal. Like, you have these giant, muscular, titanium men that are like either like pulling levers or their heads are like holding up like the the structures and you know they have these really creepy um gothic sort of um almost slightly van gogh-esque uh statues that are like littered all throughout the um the city as well and you know there's definitely more sunlight in the first Batman mm-hmm. as opposed to like Batman Returns when it went on full full Burton, which is why I think like there's this gold aesthetic that feels more like in tune with like what Warner Brothers was maybe kind of, you know, go- going after, which is why I feel like he was one leg in the door, one out, one leg out in this. But so there's a phrase that comes up in context of Batman and Robin a lot. 
because Joel Schumacher, he did that thing where, like, you know something exists, but you're not supposed to, like, acknowledge it publicly in an interview, you know? <laughs> and he talked about how he wanted to make Batman and Robin as toyetic as possible. Toyetic being a phrase for something you can turn into franchise You can toys. sell, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Monetizable. I would argue that Burton's Batman ended up being that, but it almost feels incidental to the purpose. You know, like... I'm sure it was designed with that in mind and the designs were approved with that in mind, among other things. But in the case of Batman, you know, again, to return to the Dark Deco style, which was endemic of not only both the Burton movies and then both the Schumacher movies, but also Batman the Animated Series throughout the 90s. You know, in all of those cases, it created this unified vision of Batman as what it was in its earliest comic form, this sort of, you know, early century influence design. No, I think that's why when, you know, Nolan finally came out with Batman Begins, it was such a jarring departure. You know, I think people were so just like, what is this? You know, that this this real world Batman, which is funny because everyone that said that was forgetting how everyone actually felt when the 89 one came out because they go, wow, you took this hammy as hell storyline that Adam West had done for years and you made this gritty retelling of it. And people now look at the 89, I mean, not not all people, but some people uh, look at the 89 one as being this sort of garish, you know, funny hammy thing when that was not what people thought when it first came out. And I st- I don't think that. I think it falls somewhere in the middle because in this version, you have the little nods to the original series. Like when the Joker um, shoots his gun and the little uh, flag comes out that says bang. Like that's obvi- uh, an obvious nod to, you know, to Adam West's original Batman. And it, it doesn't, it's not so, it's grounded, but it's not so grounded that I, I don't believe the world building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting how Burton negotiates that balance of, like, drawing attention to, again, to Wes Batman, which you get some of in, you know, Michael Keaton's very, like, bashful performance of Bruce Wayne, or especially um, in The Joker, which is directly recalling Cesar Romero's original take and its look. But if, you know, if we're going to discuss, especially since it's kind of impossible to discuss these movies as anything other than a tandem package... If we're going to talk about, you know, deviations from the quote-unquote Batman script, that's a good way into 1992's Batman Returns. It's chilly in here. I'll warm you. Down, Oswald. We need to talk. You see, you and I have something in common. Sounds familiar. Uh, appetite for destruction, contempt for the czars of fashion. Wait, don't tell me. Naked, sexual, charisma. Batman. Which in the case of that film, you now have Burton, who has made a bona fide hit. A hit that pulled down the kind of numbers that would still be impressive today, let alone 30 years ago. So now he is at a point where he can get Warner Brothers to bankroll pretty much anything he wants. What he chooses to cash that in on is the only direct sequel he's ever made. And it's arguably the most Burton movie he's ever made. Uh, you know, I, I think this this one is just, oh God. I mean, this is, we, we, were t- we joked around about this while watching the movie, but this is like what happens when you let the director have carte blanche to do whatever they want. It's like when you gave David Lynch... Uh... <laughs> 
the basically Showtime was like, do whatever you want with Twin Peaks, the the return. Yeah. And and he certainly did. Yeah, and that's the same like type hour. of thing. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this movie is just the perfect anti-summer blockbuster. And it's so by design. I mean, the fact that he thought Heather's and was like, hmm, he would be, I want, I want to collaborate with him. And granted, he was originally, you know, uh, approached to do Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. But the fact that he actually <laughs> brought him to say, hey, can you do a sequel to this uh, blockbuster that a bunch of kids are going to be, go- you know, going to see? And in, in, in that sense, like, it's this, it was all intentional on his part to make this the most like his greatest subversion, you know, to date. I, I, he basically I, saw a movie about two teenagers killing other teenagers and, and was like, and I want him to write my screenplay for a movie, a family movie. That's going to be marketed by McDonald's. That's going to have toys. That's going to have, I mean, he knew all of this. It's going to influence people into BDSM for yeah. many years yeah. to come. Strangely, we will come back to that momentarily. <laughs> but with Batman Returns, one of the things that really grabs me right off the bat is as you mentioned you know almost this kind of willing put on defiance of the audience yes because you know batman was well regarded however whatever contentions may have existed regarding its corniness at the time and by the time returns rolls around you know he's also done burton i mean has also done edward scissorhands he has now kind of shaped his style yeah. with the audience he has established these juxtapositions between light and dark, this sense of play amidst the macabre. And now he uses that to surprise them and hit them with this despairing, even more German expressionistic oh, than the first movie that not only asks you to drink in every individual frame in a way most superhero movies really do not, but asks you to empathize with a maladroit multimillionaire who doesn't know how to relate to other people and everyday secretary being abused by her boss and who is eventually left for dead and a man who at the very beginning of the film is thrown into a river by his parents as an infant. I when we watched it, I remember sitting there and being like, "This is awful! Like this is so just, sad." Just the, think about the rundown of all the shit that he that he puts in this movie. I mean, it's it's set during Christmas time. You know, which is where, which makes Gotham City the sunless like metropolis, yeah. which just by in the time way, for a June nineteenth release. Exactly, <laughs> it's all the story. The story deals with marginalized children who are either dumped into the river like Moses or kidnapped by like murderous circus folk. Um, it's incredibly hypersexualized to the point where you wonder if the MPAA like even watched it. You know. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the true hero of this movie is, as you'd mentioned, this mentally unstable, like female zombie, basically, who wants to get revenge on either um, the city that that turned on or, or the, 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 the this corporate male dickhead that's we could easily see as the stand in for our current president. There are <laughs> arguably at least three villains in this movie. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Christopher Walken as a fascist named after Max Schreck, the famous German actor might be the biggest of them. It just, it warms the cockles of my heart. It really does because I, to return to your point, Mike, this is maybe the most Tim Burton movie ever made. But while he's always had these offbeat flourishes of humor in his films, I think Batman Returns, among other things, is a really darkly 
funny movie. Well, there's oh, so is. many innuendos in yeah. it. Like that would have, as a kid, would have just gone right over my head. But having watched it now as a 25-year-old adult, like that scene where he's at the water cooler, the penguin, mm-hmm. um, I think he says something to... to fill her void. Yeah, it, that's, is, yeah, it's <laughs> just awful. He, he, some of the lines of dialogue that we just have. Here's the pussy cat I've been waiting exactly. for. Exactly. Now, now, I, not to sound like the old person in this in this room or whatever, but I I vividly remember this summer as well, and this is true. You could not keep a Catwoman poster up in the city for longer than a it's day. true. People stole them everywhere. I remember I even planned as a kid. I was only eight years old at the time, and I remember like wanting to find one of the city's posters that were either at a bus stop or. That were at because near the nearby gas station you used to plaster all these uh, posters there, and I I couldn't even get it the days that the, I remember seeing it and coming back to it and they were already gone. People took them everywhere. She was it was an icon. It was an instant icon before the movie. Well, even Well, and that's hit. funny because I read that today online. Oh, really? Yeah, and the um, originals of that poster are going for like thousands of dollars yeah. now. Yeah, <laughs> it, I mean it, it became a total icon. But to back to your dialogue, I mean it, again it goes back to Daniel Waters, like you, you know. I had mentioned jokingly that Burton was very um, similar to Michael Jackson at the in, in his career in the sense that um, he collaborated with the the very best that married his own visions. You know, like with Batman, um, he was able to you know finally like you know his marriage with with uh, with with Elfman came into such fruition. Like the two of them just united perfectly, especially even with Keaton. With this one, it's it's. Look, Waters is such a genius marriage, and such a it because it allows him to indulge in the fantastical and the perverse aspects of life that would just fall apart under a weaker writer, and that's what made Waters and what, that's what made Heather's so fucking great is that it's stuff that we all get. Everything's palpable. Everything's real. We all know these type of arch- we all know these archetypes. We all know these high schools. We all know exactly the themes and the things, the motifs that he's discussing. But it's told and presented in such a twisted and macabre way that you can't just help but laugh, even when it is genuinely disturbing. And that's what's so fucking great about Batman Returns, you know. And, and one of the things I really do that that kind of really dives into the fantastical here. And this is what I would argue why it's the most Burton movie ever is that he he just crazily departs from the source material to the point that, and this is something he kind of hints at in Batman um, 89, is that he literally melds their sort of spirit animal, so to speak, to each individual character. And that's crazy. Like the Catwoman is literally licking herself, cleaning. The Penguin is pretty much a penguin at this point. He's living eating in the Arctic, fish heads, eating yeah. fish heads. And Batman is like they—they they just keep almost referring to him as the Bat, and so much so the fact that he actually starts taking on his primal qualities, like as we saw in like the first one where he's sleeping upside down. So I think it's—I think it's very interesting. You bring up like the deviations from the Batman canon, Mike, because one thing that's really interesting is how. Watchmen had only come out a few years before this. That was published throughout 1986 and 7. And that was when superhero deconstruction, particularly DC superheroes, started to seep its way into the mainstream. And obviously, you know, Watchmen wasn't, you know, it was big at the time, but not big the way it is today, certainly. But 
In the case of Watchmen, you had, especially DC in particular, publishing this deconstruction of the Batman as this rich, impotent man full of anger he doesn't know how to place. And strangely, Burton sort of services Batman in the same way here, where he treats him as this man trying to, as the dialogue quite literally draws out, free himself from his mask to be who he actually is. Mm -hmm. You know, like deconstructions of the Batman are nothing new. Um, the movies with Val Kilmer and George Clooney would both go on to do hokey, but similar versions of the same. All of Christopher Nolan's movies are explicitly dedicated to the pursuit of trying to understand who Bruce Wayne is without the mask on. This is a movie that draws your attention to that and then says, you know, maybe Batman is his truest self under the mask. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is all of them. I mean, like all three of them find themselves liberated by their animalistic equivalents, which is a really interesting uh, paradigm to, to to explore and something that totally connects with Burton's sort of style. I mean, the, the fact that they're all wearing costumes on the surface and in every fucking superhero movie, there's always some dickhead that's always just like, oh, look at you, you're a child in a costume or, you know, in, in tights or whatever. And these are these are grown ass adults who find themselves living the reality they want to in those tights. Like, and that is intrinsic to Burton as a filmmaker. He doesn't want to live in in, in reality. We've seen that multiple times in, in 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 every one of his movies. He like frowns at the reality. And this in this movie, you can sense that he's at his most comfortable because this is the farther the furthest he's ever been removed from reality. Because and, and that's not to say that this movie isn't realistic. This movie is realistic because it takes a lot of the societal themes and commentaries and allows the visual metaphors to embellish that. And that's great storytelling. And that's one of the reasons why I argue this is the best Batman movie, because it is not confined to any time and place. It is all on its own. It's it's removed from any of that. And it's this sort of timeless original entry that that is Again, it's solely Bart Burton, and that's it's it's not like you know twenty thirty years from now, we're probably gonna you know align Dark Knight to like post nine eleven, which we already have. We already have done that. You're not gonna do that with Batman Returns. Batman Returns just exists, like, and that's fucking powerful. And it exists, and yet in the same breath, it is completely of a piece with this early nineties era of studio filmmaking, mm -hmm. where you know. This isn't the 70s. People aren't getting the keys to the kingdom to make any goddamn movie they want or to like dream up in a coke fugue or whatever it was. <laughs> but you are now, if you make a hit, you will be allowed to do pretty much anything based off of that because now you are trusted enough to make another hit. Mm -hmm. And you know, this did well. It was not the mega hit Batman was, but it did very, very well. And yet one of the interesting things about Batman Returns is that, at least in its time, it developed a reputation as, if not being a flop, because once again it wasn't, being, you know, a difficult film. A film that not everyone liked. Yeah, and you know, I, I gotta say though, and we were talking about this and debating this um, while watching it, I do think that the early 90s, there's this sort of... I don't know if people have ever really discussed this or really explored this, but it seems as if like there was a lot of risk taking going on with studios with, with their sequels. Like they were they were adamant on doing something different. And you saw that especially 
between the years of like 90 to 93. I mean, like literally a year after this, or no, it's the same year, actually. You have um, uh, Alien 3, which is, I consider the ballsiest sequel of all time in, in the sense of what they do with the characters <laughs> and at the end of that movie and where they're going with it and the metaphors that they weld. I mean, literally that movie is an AIDS narrative for the most part and, and, and an abortion narrative and all these dark themes. And it's a fucking summer blockbuster for Christ's sake. And like, you would never have that today. You would never. Like, I was going to say, I mean, a central theme of Batman Returns even is the idea of a corrupt criminal organization paying off the cops to create gang crime <laughs> in order to justify further police intervention. Mm -hmm. You know, like, the, and I mean, these are very, like, 80s fallout cultural notions, but it's fascinating to see them in a big studio movie all the same. Well, and this is Tim Burton, again, dealing with the outsider character you know the the characters that are different and so society kind of shuns them away like the penguin is deformed his his own parents can't even love him so we and and you know with catwoman she was still made out to be that character of you know the unlovable woman and that's what makes these characters so likable and memorable is that although they're villains you still are you feel for them throughout the entire movie like as disgusting as the penguin is it's it's really it's really sad mm -hmm. his story that's a really good point, because especially now, you know, we sit here in 2019 in the era of the cool villain, the appealing villain, the villain that you low-key cheer for just as much, if not more, than the protagonist. The Lokis, if Yes, you will. the Lokis yeah. of the world. That was not always the case. You mm -hmm. wanted the starkest possible contrast to your white bread or, like, shades of white bread hero as possible. Well, I think it's interesting, too, that the, both of these films portray the villain or analyze the villain in the same way. Like, the heroes analyze the villain in the same way that we are. You know, I, this is something I brought up in, like, when we're watching Batman Returns, is that, you know, you watch um, Keaton's Bruce Wayne observe the, the Joker through, you know, the, the VHS, you know, through, 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 through news stories. You know, he sees, he first sees the Joker through through um well he, it's closed circuit television closed, yeah closed circuit television for the most part and he kind of says it's the same thing with the, the penguin and so there there almost seems to be this like sort of subtle commentary going on that you know is is burton really orchestrating the villain or are we actually seeing it ourselves you know gleaning you know a few details granted the penguin's literally trying to kill all the ki the kids, and Joker is literally killing all of Batman, uh, all of <laughs> all Gotham, Gotham City with gas. So but I more than anything, you want to sit down and watch. Mm -hmm. You are drawn in in this way. Yeah. And actually, if we're talking about that kind of satiric implication, that's a good way to jump into 1996 with Mars Attacks. Mr. President, the President of France is online too. He says it's important. Hello, Maurice. Ça va? Très bien. I have some good news for you. The Martian ambassador is here, and we've negotiated a settlement. Maurice, get out of the room. Get out now. Okay, so this is a true story. Uh, I, 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 every one of these movies is going to have a nice little Rothman short story attached to it of when I went to the theaters for this. So I remember my, my mother 
uh, used to, it was the easiest thing to take us to the, go, to go to the, um, the movies cause she can go to the mall right nearby. And she usually stayed in for like at least the first 30 minutes of the movie. So she can look like, you know, she's a, a nice mom that stayed with us with the, the, the kids. And then she'd go off and say, I need a cigarette. And she'd go to see, go to the mall nearby. That wasn't going to happen this day because, uh, about 25 minutes into the movie, my brother had a panic attack. Um, and, and he was six years old and he lost his mind. Um, and when Michael J. Fox, who to him was always going to be Marty McFly dies, uh, at the, like with, but while reaching out to Sarah Jessica Parker and, that pretty much is the first major, major death that happens in this movie. For the of most many. Part, of many. <laughs> and he had an asthma attack, a panic attack, and my mom had to bring him out of the theater. And then they're like, Michael, we need to go. And I was like, I'm not going to I want to watch this movie. So I stayed and they went to the the mall. And I remember thinking of this, this whole movie, that sort of sense of um, anxiety that I felt about my own brother was just further exacerbated by how f- much of a fucking crazy downer this movie is. Like it is so, and, but it's but it's hilarious at the same time. Like I, I enjoyed myself, but I also found myself riveted by just how merciless Burton is in this movie. Yes, if we're going to talk about Burton's mordant sense of humor, I brought it up in context of Batman Returns, which flex of it exists there, but it's much more peripheral in that case. Here it is front and center. Because as much as anything, Mars Attacks is a marvel of stunt casting Mm -hmm. and is basically an excuse for Burton at the height of his powers to adapt a series of retro tops trading cards about Martian (laughs) invaders as an all-star December release where he either kills or dismembers basically every significant cast member on screen. Well, and it's another one of his movies where you don't know really the time that they're in. Mm -hmm. Like, it's very 50s aesthetic, kind of like Edward Scissorhand does. (laughs) You know, you you can't really, like, the technology is a little older. That's Remember when we were watching it Mm -hmm. and, like, Jack Black's character is joining the military and um the- yeah, at the same time you have like arcades because like jim brown's character exactly are, like, it- his kids are going to the arcades the the you know vegas has some sort of modern techniques to it you know you don't know where where are we in the time time it's in a timeline where tom jones is still packing the house in vegas every single night hey, so tom jones that will is. always pack the house in vegas god i love tom jones um yeah, you know what, what, what? Isn't that the greatest sense of source material, though? Tops trading cards? I mean, perfect for Burton. Well, in the whole film, in that respect, down to the source material, kind of feels like a put on, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it feels like, okay, you're going to make a movie out of trading cards about hideous beasts that literally yell, ack, 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 <laughs> because those were placeholder phrasings yeah. in the script. <laughs> That were then used they as used what it. the Martians say. <laughs> but that's, but, and, and, and your anecdote at the beginning actually hits on a point I wanted to bring up about this. You know, Mars Attacks is really funny. I think mm-hmm. a lot oh, of this movie is very, very funny. It's a total immersion in the kind of kitsch that Burton loves to work in as a visual style. And yet, it's terrifying. Yes. In a sense. It's terrifying in the way that, like, I remember, like, 40s, 50s space invader movies being terrified when I was myself a kid watching Sven Gulli and things like that. You know, it's not terrifying in the visceral way, but the first time that someone gets shot with one of the ray guns that burns their flesh down to the skeleton, 
It's revolting. Yes, it's totally revolting. It's Down a, you to don't the... stand a chance type yeah. of scenario. You yeah. Know? I and remember... we also don't speak the same language as them. I remember watching this as a seven-year-old going, man, that's a terrible way to get killed. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that I think that's... And they set that tone right at the beginning with like the flaming cows. It's, I mean, the visual metaphor of the flaming cows is perfect because you could sit there and laugh at the same time. It's downright horrifying. There's a legion of cows just still running and they're on fire melting. And there's this sense of hopelessness right from the get go. And it never lets up and it gets worse and worse and worse. Even when you finally have the resolution at the end and they're standing there outside like this crumbling in crumbling DC and you have Lucas Haas talking about everyone living in teepees. Like you're just like, this is society is over. Like we are done. Well, and even when um, they switch Sarah Jessica Parker's head and body with the dog, you know, they switch. It's like, that's, funny you know it was comical but also downright terrifying yeah. too the way that when she's flirting with pierce brosnan's sever head like the dog tail wags mm. is a great visual gag and it's revolting yeah. and that it, that line that we're all kind of trying to work around in our own way that is the line that mars attacks is straddling because this is a movie that very much wants you to chuckle at it to an end you know you don't cast jack nicholson as the american president not that long after nixon and also as you know like a las vegas huckster just for flavor is would you argue that this is the most eclectic cast of the last 30 years i mean look at this so we have jack nicholson in a dual role uh glenn close and net benning pierce brosnan danny devito martin short jack black Sarah Jessica Parker, Michael J. Fox, Rod Steiger, which is great, Pam Greer, Ray J, Tom Jones, Lucas Haas, Natalie Portman, Jim Brown, Joe Don Baker, Lisa Marie Smith, and probably at least 10 or 15 more people that we're not naming on there. And this is, and not to mention, this film was shot in California, Nevada, Kansas, Arizona, and get this, Argentina. I'd also like to say that Jack Nicholson, although he's playing a dual role, they're not related. No, not related. (laughs) And you can very blatantly tell that it's the same. It's Jack Nicholson. It's such a farce of a film. And that's the thing. I feel like it. So Burton is very much drawing your attention to its nature as farcical, you know. Burton is very much, you know, putting on the vestiges of camp that inspired him as a young filmmaker, Mm -hmm. especially. But it's also camp in the service, and I kind of want to play this out because maybe it's just me, but I was struck by how this movie is alternately playful and kind of Mm mean-spirited. Yeah. Because, you know, if I don't dislike Mars Attacks, I will at least point out the fact that, you know, like, Mars Attacks really wants to put these people in a sandbox to slam the action figures together and watch people die. It's like the way you used to, like, play fantasy alien invasion when you were a kid. (laughs) Yeah, which is funny because when the action figures came out for this movie, they made no heroes and they just made the aliens. (laughs) Also, because it's a spoof, like, sci-fi film, I think the kind of cheesy CGI works for it. And and I will say, you know, it's cheesy because it's mid-1990s CGI, which is right at a time where if you weren't James Cameron, you didn't really have the technology to do it right yet <laughs> at, the, at a proper level. But yes, like, Samantha, I completely agree. Like, you know, the hokey nature of the character designs kind of works within context of the film. 
but also I kept locking in on like the little weird like yes. tendrils of skin on the cheeks in particular. <laughs> They're and so how you, gross. And how you can hear them flap, which is actually really great sound design, if yeah. anything. Yeah. But you can hear them swish and flap around, and it's just sickening. The heads popping thanks to Slim Whitman at the end of the film is disgusting. There there are a lot of to that note, there is this weird and maybe this is the best kind of horror because you get lulled in, but there are so many instances that actually I would argue that at every moment that there's a joke, there's a knife right behind it. That's ready to just slice you because, and the the best scene for this is, um, you know, when you're watching Martin short, taking home the call girl back to the white house and Martin short can't be scary ever. He's funny. He's always going to be the funniest guy in the room. I, I love Martin Short to death. So you have this, you have Martin Short that's the focus point. He's the area of emphasis. And you're just laughing and laughing. But Lisa Marie is so scary in that sequence. She doesn't As, blink. And she, the, she never blinks. Yeah. And the way that she walks with her like arms and, and, and everything, it is so haunting. And when and Burton's so, the, the, the genius here is that this dichotomy that Burton orchestrates where you're just so focused on short. So when he does pounce with you with that horror, it hits so hard and so visceral because you're just really not expecting it because it's, it's such this weird concoction. It's like drinking like a glass of milk and finding at the bottom there's like... Orange juice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so and, and Because it's a comedy, yeah. technically. I mean, it feels like a comedy, but then there are these brief moments of terror yeah. that you're not prepared for. It's like you go into a horror movie, you know you're expecting horror. You go into a sci-fi flick you know to expect sci-fi and although this is a sci-fi it, it's littered with comedy and I, and I think that's honestly why my brother like had an anxiety attack now mind you this is this isn't some you know kid that he also took a six-year-old to see mars attack but here's the thing that six-year-old had already also seen literally all the halloweens all the texas chainsaw massacres he's a horror uh, you know like he was a he was a horror scholar thanks to this guy at and, six and and there's no reason why he had to have an anxiety attack in that movie and i blame it's solely on Burton's dichotomy. That's my argument. So, God, well, if you ever meet him, I hope you tell him. I that. am going to tell him that and be like, "You managed to scare my brother, who had no, had no, no like, business being scared." Well, and in yeah. the same way, you know, there's something fascinating. If we're going to go back to the sandbox idea, in the way that Burton, you know, treats all of these elite tier actors as cannon fodder. Like, oh, we have Sarah Jessica Parker. Cool. We're going to mount her head to a dog. A we have Pierce Brosnan, who is now doing James Bond at this point yeah. in history. And we're going to have him sit around as a severed head for two thirds of the movie. Which is interesting. He had only done one James Bond movie at that point. And it's, and he, by this point, it was like, what? I mean, Goldeneye was just coming out. So he was becoming like a huge household name phenomenon and a household name. So yeah, that's a big deal for Brosnan to come Well, down. and it's interesting because then you have this melange of people like the up and coming stars. You have established A-listers, all of Nicholson. You have, you know kitsch stars of yesteryear and that's both in the castings of jim brown and pan greer as a couple which is a direct nod to 70s filmmaking mm -hmm. and you have rod steiger in there as another nod to an older era all the stuff with steiger and um jack nicholson yeah. amounting to a long-form dr strangelove yes, tribute absolutely yeah and i will say within those scenes especially and within the movie at large you get this interesting take 
You know, I would never call Tim Burton an explicitly political filmmaker by any stretch. And if you ever get a taste of what his politics are, I think Mars Attacks is maybe the best (laughs) illustration, which is when the Martians show up, nothing we do will matter. No, it's this hopelessness that that could only come from the the art school kid that sat alone at the table in high school where well, he just wants the, the world to burn and the like they have the scene where there's conflicting ideologies on what to do with the aliens one side is like we should bomb them immediately and then another one is like no we should greet them with peace and try mm-hmm. to work this out so i mean it's definitely you can see how how he would maybe take on like what he would think if aliens came here what he would say we should do I know we live in a very different culture than the 1990s, which, like, no shit. But (laughs) at the same time, imagine a movie now frying Congress on screen. Yeah. Think about the resolution of this movie and think about who's the savior. The savior is yodeling. (laughs) Like, music that that couldn't be any more fringe and any more out there and, and less expected then it's 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 insane like and and it's so only that could be the true hero of this movie and the only solution and it's i remember even as a kid being like what like that's the resolution like and it's not some cheeky sort of thing like there is absolutely like uh, a like a pointed uh like metaphor there with that and just having this this older lady that that the family hates and leaves and you know drifts aside and her yodeling saving the world like that's that's burton's commentary somehow of like yeah and also you know we've seen with these last two movies burton's idea of a christmas movie because after batman returns mm-hmm. part of the reason that the alien death rays made everyone burn into red and or green skeletons was because of the film's december release so really yeah oh wow so you know tim burton's a filmmaker for the holidays that's hilarious and <laughs> You know, there's no real natural transition here, so I'm going to just go for it anyway. Just go apes about it. Apes a-poppin', everyone. There we go. So, we, uh, yeah, without any further preamble, we're just going to steer our first half discussion into 2001's Planet of the Apes. It's written by um, William Broyles Jr. Okay, he wrote the screenplay for Castaway, for Apollo thirteen, for Flag of Our Fathers. He he knows how to write. Obviously, like I'm, I I love Castaway. I think it's really well written. Yeah, Castaway is only like a year removed from this too, so that's that's pretty bad. I mean, and he wrote this. Yeah, and on, honestly, like Blake Goble has an amazing rundown of this movie and our dissected and our ranking of consequence of sound. And I can't do justice to it, but he does an amazing job in talking about the pre-production hell that this movie was in. And honestly, this is pretty much the biggest uh, fumble 
for, for, for Burton. Even yeah, because Dark we can, Shadows. Like... We, can, we can talk about movies we disliked, but a lot of them were successful. Mm-hmm. This, as we've acknowledged in past episodes, and especially if you look at his chronological body of work, is his first outright flop. Yeah. It made money, but not the kind of money that leads to sequels, because obviously this was put on the shelf for the better part of a decade after this, as far as the Apes property goes. And it did not have anywhere near the critical reception necessary to justify another installment. Mm -hmm. Oh, he even said he's been uh, quoted saying that he would rather throw himself out a window than make a sequel to this movie. Think about everyone who passed on this, which is weird, you know. And I and there's another project that we really should talk about tied to this one too because this feels almost um, sort of like his redemption in a way. Uh, but you know, Chris Columbus, Sam Hamm, James Cameron, Peter Jackson, the the Hughes brothers. I mean, like there are so many names that were attached to this project, and they all bailed because Fox. If you go back in the history of 20th Century Fox itself, I won't get too exhaustive on this episode, but Fox was desperate to breathe life back into this property for like a pretty long time. There are bananas for those apes. Stop it. Stop it now. (laughs) It goes all the way back to 1988, though. Well, I guess they they gave him, I was telling you this, um, they gave him a release date before they'd even started filming for it. Like, they were like, it has to be out by now, this, this Because if we're talking 2001, I mentioned earlier that, you know, by the 90s, we're getting into that era where, you know, you'd have a date first and everything Mm -hmm. else came together in the wake of that, or you'd have a property first and you build a movie around it. By 2001, we are now in the thick of that phase. And the early aughts are full of very expensive and eminently forgettable movies, a lot like this because of that. Well, it almost seems as if, as if like this was a challenge that Burton really wanted to take. I mean, he, there's no reason for him to do this. I mean, he, he had just, you know, two years earlier, he had done Sleepy Hollow, which is his own spin. And he, he still proved, as we talked about in the first episode, that he could make his own spin. He could put his own stamp on it. And I wonder, because of what happened with Superman Lives, you know, the the project where it didn't work and he wasted years and years on trying to create his own stamp on something. I wonder if this was his way of like trying to get his mojo back and doing a bigger property like this and be like, you know, I could do apes. I, I, I could do this <laughs> and not realizing how insistent the studio is going to be on his own vision. Because this is literally the opposite of what happens with his Batman movie. You know, every A-lister, they all do a monkey film sooner or later. <laughs> That's true. Clint Eastwood did any which way but loose. Oh God! And uh, hey, and Joey from Friends did. Uh, um, what was the uh... Ed? Yeah. Very glad you thought of yeah. Ed. Yeah. Glad we're talking about Ed in 2019. Hey, this is an all apes discussion. Um, oh, all, my, ro- as... all roads lead back to Ed. But do, I wonder if that was like if it was an ego check for himself, like or not an ego check, but he just it was it was ego that that fueled him. They said like you know what, fuck it, I can do this. So you know? to give some context for those at home who might not be familiar, in brief, Superman Lives was an aborted late '90s project that Burton was putting together with Warner Brothers to bring the Superman ba- franchise back for the first time since Christopher Reeve stepped down, and he was going to cast Nicolas Cage as Superman. It was going to be written by Kevin Smith. This is all very '90s. What I am saying to you now. 
And it fell apart eventually because of a mixture of just Burton not being able to get on the same page with producers and producers insisting on giant spiders, which is a whole thing you can read about online. Just start Googling John Peters if you're so inclined. (laughs) And in, in all of these cases, you know, again, this is Burton who, you know, always worked within the studio system and for the first time really had been told no. Mm -hmm. You had him doing something here that was very interesting because Mm -hmm. with Batman, we talked about Burton putting his own stamp on a project. With Planet of the Apes, you have Burton coming in to do a movie that feels as little like him as any film we've talked about in this series. I didn't even know it was Tim Burton until we were doing this. I had no idea because this movie came out in 2001. I wasn't even 10 yet. So I, I remember seeing it with my dad, but being too young to like really give a shit about directors. And so when we sat and watched this on Sunday, um, I the whole time I just thought, this is not a Tim Burton film. There's no way this is a Tim Burton movie. And, and I don't really see what is a Tim Burton movie about this. It's just so bland. It's devoid and, of and anything that makes him him. No, it, it's just a, it's, it's so typical blockbuster by you know paint by numbers blockbuster and there's just you get the sense that at some point in the production and maybe even before the camera started rolling he just was kind of like whatever let's just go through it this just feels like 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 hired gun burton and we've never seen that up until this point we really haven't i mean like what's the closest that could even come to this like none i don't i I can't think of any movie that uh, in his filmography leading up to this point that that it felt as if he just is so he's he's soulless here. Like it's just this is his second attempt at sci-fi. I mean, as we were just talking about, Mars Attacks is his first attempt, but I think it works because it's a spoof on yeah. the genre. This isn't a spoof. No, and I wish it was at times. And and I and I keep when we were watching it on Sunday, I kept wondering like, what would have been his? What would have made it Burton? a lack of this kind of aggressive humorlessness for one, which Samantha, Mm -hmm. to your point, I think is a huge issue with this movie there. You know, Burton movies can be serious, but even some of the most dour and the most serious films, Ed Wood, Sweeney Todd, there is a levity to them. Even if it's a gallows kind of levity, it is levity all the same. Planet of the Apes is all about immersing you in this beige and jet black universe with almost no speeds between those two colors, mind you, except for like a lot of Hunter Green, which is very late 90s, early aughts in and of itself. And in the service of nothing in particular. Well, and Paul Giamatti's character is supposed to be kind of the comedic relief. He reminded me of his character from Big Fat Liar in it. (laughs) More like Paul Giamonkey, am I right? (laughs) Good one. Really, really good. (laughs) Yeah. But like... That's the one character that you're supposed to kind of get laughs from. And the whole time I was just like, ugh, like he's, it's awful. It's, it's so, it's cringy well, humor. It's just, it's obvious humor. And it's this, it's almost worse than the sort of punch up humor that Disney hires for all its like Marvel and Star Wars movies. It, it, it's just, you know, there's the, there are these patches of humor that feel almost like, like studio designed as if they're like, we need to li- liven this up a little bit. You know, like we need to like add something here. Like, hey, let's add stoner apes over here in the corner for no reason. Or like, let's add this one sequence where, you know, we're trying to see how the, the apes live their lifestyle, but none of it's interesting because it's just us in ape suits. So like, there's no, there's no creative licensing here. Like, you know, what he does with Mars Attacks or like with Batman, he, you don't, you never see him go the extra mile here to try to make his own thing. 
Well, yeah, because again, once you get down to the planet, because even the space age stuff isn't entirely engaging, but at least it has a look to it. And you get to watch like 10 minutes of a studio movie that is just Mark Wahlberg teaching a monkey how to fly in space. That is the first 10 minutes of this movie. (laughs) I'm not exaggerating that for those of you at home who might not have seen it. Oh, but it has to pay off. (laughs) They spend so much time on Mark Wahlberg and the astronaut monkey, which don't get me wrong. That is its own movie. Super. Super chill. This less so. Yeah. Because here you get, you know, again, you get this homogenous version of Burton that barely feels like Burton and in service of a movie that is, it's very weird because this came out the better part of 20 years ago now and it is the same kind of washed out flavorless palette that we complain about with modern Mm -hmm. movies. Well, there's so many plot holes in it too. One thing that struck me when we were watching it was where the fuck did the monkeys get the horses from? Where'd the horses come from? <laughs> I don't know. It's it's like the whole time I was watching, I was like, how did this happen? And the, you're not explaining anything. And what happened? Like Chris Christopherson's character serves absolutely no purpose. Oh, I forgot he's in the movie. <laughs> it's, it's wow. Just... Well, because the movie walks a very, very strange line of assuming that you are tangentially familiar enough with the apes universe to understand what the movie is. Yeah that it doesn't bother to tell you any of these things. You know, some exceptionally bad superhero adaptations we've seen in recent years do the same thing, where they trade on its audience's assumed knowledge, but not in a way that feels rewarding, in a way that feels lazy. Yeah, I mean, it's basically the direct opposite of what we were discussing with Batman, where he trusted the audience, he used the source material, uh, you know, wisely, and was able to kind of twist and turn it and not have to put everything in there and just kind of keep it at a, you know, at arm's length. And that's not the case here. Like this is, I, I, it's, it's weird because I I find myself hard to press to talk about it because it's such a, an inessential movie, you know? And it's, it's kind of like what happened with us with dark shadows, but even worse because there, there's just no flavor to this. At least Dark Shadows was like kind of nice to look at. Yeah, Like there were exactly. colors. And I was going to say, we'll get into this more in the second half of the show. This doesn't even have that. And no. that, you know, that dinginess and that murkiness bleeds over into the storytelling because, you know, there's a kind of a non-committal love triangle between two human beings and an ape woman, which... You know, my favorite stupid detail about this movie is that all the female apes have eyebrows for some reason because like it's because they thought it was unsettling. They didn't have them at first, (laughs) which is which is more proof that, you know, focus groups ruin movies. But Mm -hmm. anyway, that's actually a really good point, because I I, I think that 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 whole relationship between Mark Wahlberg and um, Estelle Warren and uh, Helena Bonham Carter is pretty much a perfect metaphor, a perfect parallel to the actual film itself where you have the film and then you have, um, <laughs> you have, you have basically Elena Bonham Carter representing Burton. You have Estelle Warren who's representing the studio. 20th and Century Fox. The film is being Mark Wahlberg, this dubi- dubious like Bostonite that's just like, hey, we got to get off. The- we gotta- this is our chance to stand up to the apes, guys. <laughs> and like, he's like, the most inessential character in any Burton movie. And, and that's pretty much the the film in this whole scenario in a nutshell for me. Well, it's Burton just... wanted them wanted the love interest to be Helena Bonham Carter's yes, character. Yeah, of course. But 20th Century Fox vetoed it yes, because that's... they were like, "This is unnatural. It's bestiality." Yeah. But it's like that was such a when they share that quick 
like kiss at the end. I was like, oh, like I kind of liked it. Cause I'm like, he picks he picks the ape woman over this gorgeous model esque well, woman on a planet. And let's let's be honest, he picks her anyway because in terms of screen time, if you actually tried to chart out like Estelle Warren's screen yeah. time against Helena Bonham Carter's screen time or dialogue for that matter, neither is close. No. Tim Burton knows where the real love story of this film is, even if he's not allowed to say. But, you know, if we're talking about, you know, kind of this tepid impression of apes, I want to carry that over into our second half discussion and start getting into the technical facets, because that's a really good way to explain why this movie doesn't work for us. Yeah, and if we're talking apes... We're having more fun than a barrel of monkeys here at Filmography. Ooh. Now I'm finished. Okay. Now I'm finished. Okay. Um, but if we're going to jump into our site discussion and stay talking Planet of the Apes, again, I just want to entrench us back for just a second more in how visually unpleasing a film this is. Oh, beyond. It's funny. It reminds me of uh, what uh, CPN director uh, our, uh, Cap Blackard once said of American Pie 2. I remember lots of sand and wood, and that's I, I I remember just sand in this. I don't remember anything else. Like I, I, I don't, don't even, like sand. It just gets everywhere. I my, my but this is just so it's bland in the in the sense that I again I feel like Burton did it on purpose. I almost feel like he like sabotaged to the studio. Like there is so little of Burton in this movie that I almost it, it, I'm surprised he didn't have him put like the Alan Smithy title at the, on the top of it the one really big set piece of the film is ultimately the ship which I would argue yeah. is not nearly as cool looking as the movie seems no. to insist oh, it yeah. is yeah. it's not yeah, it's, and it's been thousands of years um, <laughs> yeah. that it's been crash landed there and still everything works yeah which is granted I know they say that it's supposed to you know, yeah, the computer's supposed to set forever, the power source. It's like, okay, yeah. Tan and black, that's a that's a pretty good description uh, for this. Even the the, 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 the wardrobe like, are so boring. Which like, is amazing because it's Colleen Atwood's work again, who, again, renowned costume artist. We've talked about her on the show previously. She has a hand in this film and in a number of Burton's others. And, you know, if there's one thing I can say for the movie, it's her ability to make hundreds of ape extras look at least mildly distinct mm -hmm. because nothing else in the movie really draws your attention between them. Well, I like I like what you say about this being a very modern looking movie, because I think even down to like the, the sort of what they're wearing is is modern in the sense they're that they're like, weird cornucopia hats, helmets. I hate them. Yeah, it's it's very if there is anything Burton about this movie, it's his ability to make something that's very timeless. And I don't mean that in a good way either because there's just I mean, I guess maybe I do mean that in a good way, but maybe that's the one positive in this and that you could watch this at any moment and not really feel it, but at the same time having lived through the summer of 2001 and early aughts like blockbusters, like this feels it feels very of that time also, right? I mean... But just... he... It, this is a sci-fi flick on a planet that we've never been to before that, that gives you endless possibilities to do oh, with yeah, what no. you want. He had a Set design. Blank slate to it's, do whatever you want. with That's what's so this. fun about sci-fi or like other... Like traveling to other worlds and film is you can do whatever the fuck you want. I, and I mean, this is what he decided to do? I mean, I, I, to be fair, I think the makeup is pretty It's phenomenal. amazing. It's I pretty agree. amazing. But... It doesn't do anything. No. You know, had this makeup been applied to, say, the original Planet of the Apes, yeah, that'd be great. You know, that, that would have been but the, interesting. But 
I just expected a little bit more like like I want the, the characters to dissolve into these characters. Like I don't I don't want to have to like oh there's Paul Giamatti or there's Charlton Heston. You know th- th- it's just it's so and it does pointless. very strange things where it it hides some actors more yeah. than others. You know, like Helena Bonham Carter is under pounds of makeup. Without the voice, you probably wouldn't be able yeah. to call her. When Charlton Heston shows up, it's kind of Charlton Heston. Yeah. You know, like Tim Roth disappears. Yeah, it I, helps that it helps that Helena Bonham Carter gets uh, the Rachel hair. Uh, you know, from Friends. It's pretty God. cool. You know? But I agree, Tim Roth's character. I could barely tell that was Tim Roth. Mm-hmm. But the character like has no depth. Really, he's no. bad for just being the sake of bad, and that sucks. Is it's like it. It doesn't make me care about the character. Like, a good villain has backstory, has something to make you give a shit about this character. And I will also add, as I told you when we watched this, Tim Roth gave up the option of being Severus Snape for this role. Yeah. Let's think about that ending even visually for a second. Like, how lazy. Like, just so fucking lazy. If we're going to talk about this being a modern-looking movie, there's nothing more modern American action movie than a cacophonous battle with a ton of extras in the service of basically nothing. Yeah. Well, and when we were watching it, so like I said, it had been a really long time since I had seen it. I was eight. Um, I barely remembered it. And we were watching it, and when, when they crash-landed uh, right next, like where he landed, uh, mm-hmm. the Washington... Um, well, it's near Lincoln Memorial. Like, yeah. yeah. And he was walking up those steps. I knew where he was at, and I was like, watch, the ape's going to be Abraham... Or Abraham Lincoln's going to be an ape. And you didn't say anything, and you just kind of like looked over at me really fast. And then, of course, we got Abraham Lincoln, as Dom likes to refer to him. Which, you know, basically removing the the possibility or or the notion or the realization that these apes lived exactly how our current America has developed itself um, year by year. We have to remove ourselves. You have to suspend that disbelief, but also it's fucking ridiculous. It is the most like shorthanded way of trying to emulate the original ending. Well, and wouldn't it be the most Burton-y thing to show you ape history at the end? Like imagine like a montage set to like fortunate son that was just like apes on the moon and apes in Vietnam and all that (laughs) shit. Which would have been hilarious. Apes with Formica counters and so on. Like Like, apes going to see Beetlejuice in theaters. And if we have an Abraham Lincoln, who did he free? Like, what was his, what did he do? Yeah. <laughs> we, are, we are pulling at ugly threads here on filmography at this point. Good Lord. Yeah, seriously. I, I, my, my thing with the, this is that, that that ending itself, where it doesn't even really make much sense logically, although I've, I recall seeing an infographic that showed exactly how the timelines work and whatnot, and someone on Reddit had said that um, if you, the original DVDs came with a timeline menu or whatever, it, it just feels like such a... <laughs> Again, half-assed like way of being like, well, you know, the original one had a really powerful ending. We should probably just do that one with a new monument. What do you got? What do you got, Tim? Uh, you, uh, what, yeah, if that you sounds need to great. have a Let's timeline attached to your yeah. DVD, there's an issue. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what you know. You tell that to David Lynch with uh, Dune when they used to pass out lobby cards with like different planet names. Yeah, well, that didn't do but, well either. Yeah, the ending might not be great. It might give us a kid pansy in a leather jacket uh, <laughs> using like a wind up camera to take pictures of a yeah. confused Mark Wahlberg. That's how the movie ends, yeah. incidentally. But you know. If that film doesn't have an entirely distinct look, everything else we're discussing this week absolutely does. Totally. 
And actually, if we're gonna talk about Colleen Atwood's costume design, I want to jump back to Mars Attacks, because one of the things I love most about it is the way that she manages to use every fabric in every color Mm -hmm. you can think of throughout the course of the film. Yeah, and I think by doing that, kind of creates this wonderful sort of history book of America of America you know like there's literally or of a particular kind of Americana at the very least yeah yeah yeah. like and and, and, and like you're saying like there are touches the 70s there there are touches the 60s there's like you know motifs of the 50s I think like Lucas Haas and Natalie Portman absolutely represent the 90s alternative movement I mean especially the fact that he's wearing like flannel and works in this donut shop he's this alternative kid like there is there, there there's just it's like this weird, yeah, it's like a weird stitched together Americana and it kind of goes back to Pee Wee's Big Adventure and the way that, you know, this movie visually makes these sort of um, subtle commentaries on American life through portraits, you know, and you get every class in this movie for the most part. I mean, I won't lend this movie the same emotional nuance that I would Pee Wee's. No, because as we talked in the last episode, you know, it does a really great, that film does a really incredible job of like, making these roadside attractions very human and Mm -hmm. very warm. This is the exact opposite of that. It actually feels like a riff on that, if anything. Mm -hmm. But it still manages to be very cohesive. Like you said, Dom, she uses every color palette in her costume design, which you wouldn't think would go together, but it somehow does. There's this one image from the movie that like really keeps ringing out to me for some reason. And it's just Sarah Jessica Parker interviewing Pierce Brosnan early in the movie, sitting on one of those egg chairs, which are very Warhol in and of themselves. (laughs) It is apple white, like apple polished white on the outside, black and white polka dot on the inside she is wearing like this sheer almost satin pink trench coat blazer thing down into mint green boots it is visually decadent a lot of the time which is remarkable for a movie this goofy yeah and it's also interesting to think that okay so mars attacks follows ed wood and batman returns if i would consider as i mentioned earlier batman returns is 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 pure burton it's i think it's just aesthetic porn in that sense and with ed wood it's definitely him at his most restrained in terms of like coming in to kind of create an an adult movie you know an, an adult picture that's 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 both of his own um signature style but also very you know old school hollywood because that's literally what he's talking about in that sense i i almost feel like mars attacks is kind of both worlds in a way it's the perfect mix. Well, because Mars Attacks, as much as anything, is Burton using a bunch of Warner Brothers money to make his best approximation of an Ed Wood flick. Yes. Yeah. Because I mean, especially it, it, it almost feels like he was looking for that type of movie after making Ed Wood. He's like, well, I've been in this head for so long. I now want to try it myself, you know? Yeah, because it works in like this riot of, again, like this retro era kitsch, as you pointed out, Samantha. But like it... it it's very it's very interesting to me too because then in the same breath you have to go back to again the CGI creatures and I want to talk about the physical design just a little bit more because like down to like the weird tendrils of brain wrinkle they are these very physical repulsive things mm-hmm. and you know we've talked about in the last few weeks of the show a lot about Burton not being able to make CGI work within his aesthetic fully especially yeah. in the later years of his career here it completely fits and i think 
it's because of a point that was made in the earlier part of our discussion about how, you know, they do, they look like corny 50s trading card characters. And that's the whole point. And that's why it just, it's, it's perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't use a lot of CGI aside from them in this film. So um, there's a scene where a casino is demolished in the movie. And that was an actual demolition. Um, but the casino was called The Landmark in Las Vegas. It was owned by Howard Hughes. And Tim Burton was lucky enough to have been there when it was demolished, and he filmed it for the movie. So, like, they used an actual shot of a building actually getting blown up for the movie, which he doesn't really do anymore. He doesn't do things like that. And that's what makes this movie feel so different than the rest of his attempts at CGI. Well, and one thing I've always thought is super hysterical about this movie, and if we're talking 90s nostalgia again for but a moment, you know, this came out less than half a year removed from Independence Day. Mm-hmm. And in its, especially in its marketing and branding, you know, at the time, this was very much like a comedy answered yeah. Independence Day. So in in that sense, it became a spoof of both like classical movies and of very modern ones. But the way that Burton turns that both playful and horrifying again is really kind of interesting, especially when you have images like, you know, the Washington Monument being battered around yes. by a UFO. Yeah, the, the the use of national monuments and iconic imagery does feel like this sort of fast-tracked parody of Independence Day. Um, but I would argue that this movie is far more terrifying than Independence Day. And I actually find Independence Day to actually be like inviting like i would i would argue like if these two movies were you know on television and i was in the mood for like a carefree afternoon i would put on independence day over this because there is something like there's an anxiety and attention to this movie that goes well beyond even the destruction and the, the the sort of terror it's it's also just in the sense of place like you never get the feeling that anyone's in any sort of like permanent safety or any sort of um you know, uh, th- th- there's a weight to any sort of location that they're in. Even the White House feels like it's this like penetrable place because it is like, I mean, I don't think it's any coincidence. I mean, it's a great gag, but the fact that they have like the tour guide going on at the same time as the alien invasion, I think there's a commentary there and just showing that just how the, the access that we have, like literally our leaders are, you know, are visited by anyone who can come into the house and you have the aliens going on there you have the person's trailer you know lucas haas's trailer park that's literally smashed in two by this huge gigantic thing you have jim brown's apartment building even at the end after all the destruction the whole fucking wall at the 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 side of it is removed so that you see the entire house without any sort of walls like everyone can see it like there's this sort of voyeurism that's at play here that is from the aliens point of view that that comes almost like that that old age that age old metaphor of the humans versus the the ants, and that and, and in this case, like this movie makes the argument that we are absolutely the ants, and I can't think of another sci fi movie that shows that sort of mercilessness, like that sort of it's it's just it's so unforgiving in that measure. Well, it's because no one is safe in this film. You no, yeah. you go into a movie, you see the stars on the marquee or wherever on the poster. And you know that these characters are safe because they're the stars of the film. They're not going to kill. They're not going to kill the Will Smith of Independence Day. Yeah, no. Whereas in this movie, it really doesn't fucking matter who you are, how top build you are. You're probably going to die in this film. So there's more of a, a sense of 
No one is safe under any circumstances, regardless of where they are on the billing. Well, and it almost turns their billing into like a visual punchline, if anything. You know, like the spectacle of watching Jack Nicholson get impaled through the chest Mm -hmm. on screen. You know, it it turns, you know, even the cast into its own like aesthetic property in that respect. And actually in that same way, that's a good jump over back into Batman 89, Because if we're going to talk about, you know, the look of the film, we have to talk about the look of the Joker, Mm -hmm. which is not only a marvel of makeup art, because let's keep in mind, in order to design the Joker, you not only had to design that revolting Joker prosthetic, which is even scarier with the paint off, I would argue. It's really frightening when you just look at it Oh, when he's got the, like, matte kind of skin-colored face paint over it. It's terrifying. It's ten times scarier than his white face. And you had to build a prosthetic where you could rub that white face off to reveal the second prosthetic underneath it. It's an an incredible piece of makeup design and, like, creature design in that sense. But it also, you know, it gives you an immediate vibe for this character because something about Nicholson's wild eyes over that prosthetic, it makes the movie. Yeah, and and honestly, there's this this sort of cartoonish element that makes you, that doesn't feel too, like, Looney Tunes-ish, you know? Like, even when he fries the Mob King, you buy it, you know, because the world itself around him has has earned that sort of moment because you believe that in this world this macabre larger than life type stuff could happen and that's that's like a it's a a very like anxious feeling to have going into a comic book movie and and i think it it helps you know lift up like a hero like batman because you really do put your weight behind this guy because you're like holy shit this world is awful like like even that someone like this guy even that shot of when they when he's like show me how it is doc or whatever when Mm -hmm. and you see the surgical tools you see the tools that i have to work and it's just these like grimy gross like rusted sharp things and you know that like i hadn't even seen the face yet and i was like grimacing so i'm like oh no what is it gonna look like well there's also this really great commentary going on in this movie uh, at least at 89 Batman, where you get the sense that like there's no space anywhere. Like everything's like really clustered together. Like all the all the especially when they start doing like the, they show the economy of the city of like, you know, the the the, the construction sites or the bars or, um, you know, the, the the people who are like everyone working and listening and watching around. They're really small sets. Yeah, Gotham has always been, you know, a stand-in for a lot of different places, depending. This is a very New York vision of Gotham in particular. Yeah, like, I mean, you just get this sense that everyone is just miserably living together. and, And everyone hates each other, which is probably why, you know, Jack Palance's character could get by unscathed. Or, you know, you know, Eckhart could be the one of the leading lieutenants or something like that. So visually... This movie does a lot of the heavy lifting to to kind of create the evil, so to speak, in Gotham and to kind of uh, empower both the Joker and uh, Batman. You know, you have these you need that you need that sort of that shining light, even if, you know, the, the, the irony is that he's the Dark Knight. Well, and it definitely I feel like has some Hitchcockian vibes to it at times, like with the really high angles mm-hmm. and. Um, the shots of characters falling, like that shot, it reminds me kind of of like vertigo. Yeah. Um, because it's just 
like it, it feels like he kind of drew from that for this particular scene, for that scene where the Joker falls. Well, if you're talking about, you know, you've mentioned a couple times, Samantha, during the show, you know, like Burton working in anachronisms, he's working in a lot of film languages, both like stylistically and in terms of like how he shoots it and how he cuts things even mm -hmm. that are of a very old mold. I mean, we've talked about, you know, if we're going to discuss like the dark deco style, I want to like articulate that a little bit because what Burton does here is incredible. Everything is exposed bolts. Mm -hmm. It's exposed brick. Everything is, again, like we've talked about, like the best Burton movies, it is physical. It is tangible in a way. Mm -hmm. It's very industrial. Yeah. And claustrophobic at times. Yeah. And, and again, uh, like it's even, even when you're, it, it's, and it's very accessible. You know, like I think about all the times that the Joker just runs into random places. You know, there's no there's no sense of um, like law there and there's no sense of um, any checks and balances. You know, I mean, like he, he literally just goes to an access chemical plant and like manages to change, like switch over their product without any any muscle. He just walks right in, you know. Like, well, and it's it's a movie where you can see every dollar on the screen in every single shot. And you're really going to see that with the sequel, which we'll get to in a moment, obviously. But with this film, even you see that ornate by design thought out kind of decor in every frame yeah and and also it's 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 not very um practical in a lot of ways you know and i and i think that kind of plays into burton's uh, attempts to make this kind of larger than life hollywood spectacle i mean like even the suit by design like this isn't a suit that you could fight in. It's just a suit and it that looks great. And it wasn't really because he couldn't move his neck no, in it. Well, this is the beginning of like the Batman having to turn full upper yeah. body trope, you know? And no. he couldn't hear very well in it either, no. which Michael Keaton has actually said attributed to kind of making his character seem a little bit more withdrawn. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't on purpose. It was because he couldn't really hear the dialogue. Which is great. <laughs> I mean, but the, like, I, I, I think that... The, there's this Dom when we were watching this you mentioned the 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 fact that like because they use so many miniatures there is a sort of timelessness to it even the, the like the special effects that go on there and I love that like and, and I think that again plays into Burton's dalliances of having that sort of practicality like you know that goes back to Frankenweenie you know that goes back into um, with Pee Wee's Big Adventure, when you have the that opening that has um, the all the, the the contraptions and whatnot, I mean, it, it, there's this, there's a tangibility to this because of you know the the the, the direct use of these small models and all. And if we're going to talk, you know, like physicality and tangible style, that's a good way into Batman Returns, Ooh, which yeah. is more of the same and yet a lot more so. Yeah, because you know, take your pick here. You have just one gorgeous image after the next. Um, the one that really arrests me is the initial flight of just the camera through the penguins frozen over zoo. Yeah. Which, you know, is a motif they'd Joel Schumacher would revisit five years later to vastly diminished returns, as it were. Yeah. But here, you know, it feels like him again taking the template of Edward Scissorhands Absolutely. and throwing it up to another level. Well, every set feels memorable. In this one. I, I mean, even so, um, I had watched it as a child, uh, but never as an adult. And so when we watched it as an adult, or at, when I watched it as an adult several weeks ago with Mike, there were scenes that, although I hadn't seen it in probably 20 years, 
I was like, oh, yeah, I, I remember this, like, scene, or I remember this uh, set design. And that should say something about a film. If you can go decades without seeing it, but then watching it and being like, gosh, that, like, it almost makes, gives you, like, a sense of deja vu. Like, I've been here before. Um, and I think that that goes a long way when you make a film, is if, if you can remember it 25 years later and think, God, I've, I've been here before, but it has been a really long time. One of the things that really rings out that came up in an earlier part of our discussion, and I promised we'd return to, is, you know, like, the way that this movie uses, like, the fetishism of the costume. Because it is drawn into sharp relief. To go back to my Watchmen example from earlier in the show, one of the things that Watchmen did was draw attention directly in canon to something that had been a part of the appeal of superheroes and even supervillains for decades, which was, like... The deviance, the fetish, the kink of them. Batman Returns is maybe one of the most literal examples of that oh, in absolutely. any film, if not the most literal. Oh, yeah. I mean, just every scene, every facet of this movie seems to be coming straight from like from the mind of, of Burton. I mean, it's just it's as if he walked through just every moment and every little bit and just did something his own self. Like he, he kind of just did his own little adjustment, his own little tinkering there. Like even down to, you know, what's inside Selena Kyle's, you know, uh, of like uh, apartment or the weird sort of um, a, a, almost like TV set design of, um, you know, the Shrek offices where you have like just filing cabinet after filing cabinet as if they're trying to say, you know, this like sort of ludicrous metaphor that he has all these deep lies in the files and all that. I mean, there's just so much that are wired into every one of these scenes, even down to like the expansive nature of the Wayne estate. Like we've already seen the set. He already established it in the first one and it's established in a way that was intrinsic to Burton's style. Yet he expands on even more. Like, you know, you go back into the, the Batcave, you get to see more of the Batcave now and you get to really just dig deep into all that sort of those, those sort of, um, uh, surreal elements that would he would explore a year later in uh, Nightmare Before Christmas that he produced, and um, you you just always get the sense with this movie that that he's 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 almost like getting off on every frame. <laughs> and I know that sounds lewd and crazy, but like this well, is it's an Burton interesting porn. extension like, of the idea, right? It's like like when I brought it up, I meant in the more literal sense of like how he explores like Batman and Catwoman and costume in particular. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there is like a slavish fetishism to every shot of the movie that oh, yeah. kind of permeates the whole film. But I, but even in going back to like them in the costume, I, I think a lot of that does come down to the fact that he prefers them there than he would outside in you know the regular attire. I mean, I actually really do love the scenes when they're outside, when they're just there themselves, and you know it's the two of them. Together, whether it's you know Selena Kyle and, and and Bruce Wayne or Max Shrek and quote unquote Oswald Cobblepot, which I guess you can argue that the Penguin never leaves his suit, but um, even when he's forced to become human, which is kind of like the inverse of the you know Selena Kyle and um, and Bruce Wayne, it's still compelling to me. Um, and this is like the one moment where like the reality in Burton's film is just as compelling as like. Well, the and there's something really interesting in that, too, especially in the way that when they emerge from their costumes in the case of Batman and Catwoman, you know, like Batman has to like rip the cowl. There are like yeah. jagged ends where he had to tear it off his face. And Selena, in the same way, has most of the Catwoman mask ripped off her head and her hair is poking out of it by the end of the film. Like, it's very much about revealing people under the masks. And I think like 
just costuming wise and in terms of how the film is shot like it draws harsh attention to that oh absolutely well he uses a lot of visual metaphors in this movie as Mm -hmm. well so like my favorite one of my favorite ones and we've actually been looking for this particular sign online um is before she's Catwoman, her sign in her bedroom says, hello there. And then after she transitions into Catwoman, it says, hell here. So, like, the lights go out. Oh, yeah. And I love that just little nod to, okay, this character has now changed. Well, and we would never, ever characterized Burton as a subtle director, but, you know, that when it's that effective, that blunt force kind of visual storytelling can work really powerfully. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just the, the use of different colors here is just... I don't think he's ever really left these colors, so to speak. I, I think that um, he definitely pulls a lot of the the colors from. I mean, if, if there's any movie that this shares ties to, you've already mentioned that it's Edward Scissorhands, and I think down to even just the the I color palette itself. I think Beetlejuice itself. too. That like green and purple that he uses in this film, like I definitely relate I, to Beetlejuice. I, it's interesting. I th- I feel like Beetlejuice is more like the prelude to '89 Batman, and this is like, and Edward Scissorhands is the prelude to like Batman Returns. It's almost as if they're like concepts. I do I do look at the penguins flippers and see Edward's hands admittedly. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. It's it's almost like they're all like his blueprints. It's like, you know, he allows himself to kind of create these sort of like uh blueprints or style guides for like these studio pictures that he has ahead of time. And and maybe that's why like they're so bundled together because they happen to be like in rhythm and synced with each other. Like, all right. In the pitch room, he's like, you liked Edward Scissorhands. You guys are going to love this. Well, you're going to like, here's what I do with Edward Scissorhands. What if we took these concepts and applied them to your franchise, you know, like character, Batman? Like, it's almost like this is his menu of what he can bring. Because the penguin in the Adam West penguin, um, character doesn't have no the, god no the, he's just a fat guy he's just a, with the monocle yeah. <laughs> so i think he obviously had to bring that to the studio execs and be like hey let's give him a deformity yeah. well i mean <laughs> but if it isn't the most burton thing in the world to say okay i'm gonna put just as much care into these comic book villains if not more so than i am batman himself mm-hmm. but you know in the interest of time and of letting people digest what we've had so far we're going to move on to the lasting image but before we leave the visual as always we're going to talk about everyone's favorite single shots from any of our four films eligible for tonight's discussion and mike i know you're excited about this one so why don't we lead off with you (laughs) this is my favorite gif uh out there other than the carl weathers and tobias and you use that um, one constantly use it every day uh, also love the Jerry Seinfeld. Also, it's like, GIF. It's, it's GIF. Um, and this is a proved huge us. argument in our home. Either way, my favorite <laughs> image and the, the shot that I think of, and there's a million of them in, in Batman Returns, but my favorite still is just, it's not subtle in the slightest, but it's when Catwoman appears into the store and she's literally like right in the center of the Shrek cat logo and she just looks left and right and her claws are just like on the sides of it. So it's almost as if the cat logo itself has the claws as well i just there's just so much that to me is like a perfect summation of the theme of this movie and what he's trying to do with it i just love it i wonder if it's supposed to look like felix the cat it looks like felix the cat it looks just like felix the cat it does but it also looks a lot like the balloons that uh joker has in in it does yeah you know well i hate to use this word but piggybacking off of what you just said i also my favorite scene is also a Catwoman scene Mm -hmm. 
And it's the scene when she's still Selena Kyle. She's yet to have transitioned into Catwoman. And she goes into her apartment and she closes the door with her foot and she goes, honey, I'm home. Oh, wait, I'm not married. And it's just one of my, I remember watching it as a kid and cackling, like thinking it was just not even really understanding it, I don't think, but just thinking it was so funny and like all her cats come out and it's just, it was a lasting image for me because again, having not seen the movie in a really long time until a couple of weeks ago, it was the one that we, when it came up, I was like, oh my God, I remember this scene because this is my favorite scene because it just, it was well, my favorite a as a kid. Well, it's portrait for her. Like, yeah. It is, that is Selena Kyle right there. It's this self-deprecating, she talks to herself. And that's you know. me too. It was very relatable for me. Even as a kid, I was very self-deprecating. So it's just that, and I also talk to myself a yeah. lot. So I think it was just a very relatable moment at even a really young age for me to see a woman kind of like... It, be lonely and talk to herself. I was like, all right, yeah, no, I can, I can dig this cat woman. Mm-hmm. What about you, Don? For me, I'm going to go back to Batman 89. Uh, sorry, Mars Attacks. I actually do have a lot of love for Mars Attacks. Yeah. Sorry, Planet of the Apes. Less sorry. <laughs> but for me, you know, like when we talk about perfect shots from a movie or hashtag one perfect shot or whatever might have you, We tend to fixate, generally speaking, and rightfully so, on like really beautifully composed images, images with depth, what have you. I am always very interested in great shots that depend on an actor to be the centerpiece of the great shot. And as such, mine is the famous image of the Joker letting out the wait till they get a low to me. Which is, I almost put that on mine. Also. Because, you know, <laughs> a lot a lot sets up for it. The blood spattered newspaper, mm-hmm. the, the gorgeous, ornate, dark deco window behind him With after moon, he like, kills right. his first person on screen. You know, you get this feeling of who the Joker is without getting a great look at him. Mm-hmm. And then you establish him as a figure of profound menace within seconds by just watching him. Burton takes this very slight, slow zoom in on him, but there's no other visual trickery beyond that. And you watch the Joker go from being kind of Nicholson to having almost like the light disappears from behind his eyes. He he looks beastly as he's just staring almost slack-jawed at this paper. And then he snaps into the cackle and the grin. And it's like watching the last vestiges of the man wear off and become the Joker Mm -hmm. on screen. And I think it's amazing. Yeah, I I just love that sequence. It's so good. So good. And And they used to use that for a lot of promotional stuff, too. If we're on the subject of Batman 89 and we're looking to get into our sound discussion, I feel like that's a good place to start because this week in sound, as with our last episode, these are four Danny Elfman scores we're going to be talking about. But in the case of Batman, it's not just Elfman. It's also Prince. Oof. (laughs) I love this soundtrack. We actually have a feature on Consequence of Sound where we talk to Scott Ackerman of Comedy Bang Bang who's a huge fan of uh, this soundtrack. And uh, he uses, he used to use Bat Dance like all the time um, in the Comedy Bang Bang episode, you know, the series. And uh, I, I actually think this is a great score and I, a great, well, great soundtrack. And I also, and, and I think it really fits in with the film because it kind of plays into, it almost feels like all of Prince's music is, just like what the Joker sees in his head, like, or sees in his mind. Like, it's like, we're seeing like 
all the voices in his head like being distilled into like pop music and I love it. I I love when he dances to it too. That's like some of my favorite scenes is when he's just fucking going for it. Because you know I'm not interested in rehashing the old argument because in brief the old argument is you know these scenes are digressive and they distract from a movie and they're not of a piece with the rest of Batman 89. I am not interested in such rhetoric. (laughs) What I am interested in is how this is at once a relic of its time. Not just that it's Prince, not just that you have this very, like, funnily enough, oingo boingo-y pop sound, which given its elfman, appropriate, Mm -hmm. but also that we are now in the thick, if anything, of the era of the multi-platinum movie soundtrack. Yes. Batman itself, as I mentioned earlier in the show, sold 11 million copies and counting itself. Prince was there to sell records. Let's just be candid about that fact. Accepting that Prince again feels like a he he feels strangely tethered to the spirit of the movie in a way that most, you know, soundtrack songs do not always. Well, I associate Prince with the color purple like most people do. And again, like Burton and and even Batman Returns, but in this movie as well, there is a lot of purple and it's the Joker's Joker's outfit. So I think it's a perfect mashup. And I guess they were trying to get Michael Jackson originally. Um, to do the soundtrack, <laughs> yeah, uh, that would have been ah, not so great. But um, no, it would have been great. I, I mean, know, this is eighty nine, so it would have been peak. It would have been Jackson great then, not so great is, now. But, yeah. but I think I, I just think that Prince was the perfect like cohesive color, like uh, for the purple, the color purple. He also, he just doesn't half ass it either, though. Like these are great fucking pop songs. That's the thing. Like, I love them. Yeah, you know? I mean, and I've only seen the movie once, and I was like, all right, no, I can get I. I would play this on my Spotify playlist on the Prince, train. I, I mean, Prince's C-Squad material is better than most people's best stuff, first of all. But also, you know, if, if Prince is not at the height of his powers here, Danny Elfman sure as Absolutely. hell is. Because Elfman's Batman theme is arguably like one of the most instantly recognizable superhero themes in any film ever made. 100% agree. I, in fact, when I saw Batman Begins, and granted, I love Hans Zimmer, probably in my top three favorite composers of all time, but God, did I miss that theme. I, I mean, it's just, and I remember, you know, nowadays I love the Dark Knight theme and I love everything he's done with, with Batman and all the swells and everything, but there was such um, an, a hunger and a nostalgia for that theme and what it did. And granted, that type of theme just doesn't exist anymore. I, I actually had a conversation with um, composer Christopher Young uh, recently, and it's going to appear on the Halloweenies podcast soon and probably Losers Club. But we talked a lot about the the fact that like Hollywood doesn't demand iconic themes anymore like this. You know, like this is like almost like a pop theme itself, you know, as, as, as catchy and as memorable as anything that Prince would write. Like this is they, they don't really want that anymore because a lot of people feel like it's distracting from the actual overall fabric of a movie. They want something that's a little bit more interwoven. They want something that can feel um, that's part of the DNA of the movie. And I think with with a, a theme like this, like I, I think it's it's so signature and, 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 and so um, a part of this era of filmmaking. I mean, it goes back to what John Williams did with Superman, you know, like John Williams Superman is similar in the sense that like you hear that theme, you know exactly what that movie is. Most of these superhero movies today, you don't really get that sense, you know, for the most part, you know, and that's kind of, it's at least not to this level where you can literally play this 
at like the Academy Awards or you could play this at like fucking theme parks like you probably heard. Well, it's like Hedwig's themes too, you mm-hmm. know, from yeah. and that's John Williams too. It's like you hear that score and you know immediately that it's from Harry Potter. And again, going back to the, the fact that I hadn't seen these, well, I hadn't seen the first one ever, but I'd seen the second one as a kid. I knew that mu- music immediately when it came on when we were watching the movie and I hadn't even seen it so I, I think you arguably that, think of Batman when you yeah. hear it and yeah. I mean, this is a theme that was even integrated into the animated yeah. series you know this this became the sound of Batman yeah. even down to the Schumacher movies they were still using Elfman's central melody well even in the video games like I know it's not the exact theme but even in playing Arkham Asylum and Arkham Knight like the music sounds more like this in the video games than it does than the Hans Zimmer score in the Nolan films. I'd, I'd say it's like a mix of, for, for sure, but they definitely have like some sort of there's a there's an an emphasis on a theme, which is what you just don't get anymore, and that's kind of I don't know. In the case of Batman Returns, you get you know Elfman is trying different sounds within the Batman theme. He even like has curious riffs on the Batman theme mm-hmm. in this film. But what really struck me were the Penguin and Catwoman sounds and how each corner of the score for each of them has its own distinct sound, its own instrumentation. It's one of Elfman's most diverse arrangements, oh, probably. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Catwoman score is just wonderful, what he does with the strings and the the bells there's this like sort of playfulness that matches like the cat walking around in an alleyway like, and I mean, and with some of the penguin sequences you have these low undulating clarinet tones it's very animalistic it's yes. supposed to fit their kind of spirit animal if you will um and i think he does a really good job of making giving an animal a sound essentially a score essentially yeah yeah and and it's just it's it goes everywhere. I mean, it's dramatic. It's playful. It's it's uh, it's fierce. Uh, it, it's my favorite Tim Burton. I mean, <laughs> it's my favorite Danny Elfman score uh, to date. I, I don't think it gets better than this in, in terms for him. Even in, in this, that says a lot given his goddamn catalog. Well, and it's a really strong example of a case where you know instead of a score fading in the periphery as we've been discussing, and even with some of Elfman's latter day work with Burton that we've talked about in the last few weeks, Returns is a case where you know you can drink in just about every composition in this. There isn't a flat point where you know the score is unremarkable, and it doesn't stop. Like it's very no, it's rare. very present. It's very present throughout yeah. the whole film, whether it's like subtler tones or whether it's really in your face about it. I think the only times it might stop is like maybe in the very few daylight sequences when they're just like wandering around the city or something. Like I, 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 I can't remember too many moments of this film where he, like, where Elfman is not a presence, and I think that kind of sets the tone for every character and all the themes that you know Burton's trying to and like pretend there. And again, it's like. It's a perfect marriage. You get the three. If we're talking about this constituting a lot of presence, we can jump back over at Elfman's work on Planet of the Apes, which, once again, not so much. The one thing I will say for his Planet of the Apes score, maybe it's just the opening overture of the film because I didn't really notice it thereafter, but he was doing wobbling, undulating bass a solid 15 years before it became the sound of all pop music for a hot minute. (laughs) You know, Danny Elfman was on the wobble bass lifestyle years before Sonny Moore, a.k.a. Skrillex, got there. It's very early aughts. That, like, <laughs> intro feels so of that time. Because, like, the 
the credits um, in the intro of like all of the actors' names are super fast on the screen and then they yes. disappear really fast. Yes. And that's something you really only saw in the early 2000s. Um, and the music is just, it sounds like something that should have been like, the Final Destination movies or something. There is a grandeur to it that, you know, a lot of Elfman's work is very, very grandiose, but there's a grandeur that doesn't feel wholly earned here, if that holds. It's kind of hard because I, I don't really actually remember too much of it other than the fact that there's like, you know, like light percussion, I guess, here and there. And <laughs> it seems to be he's trying to to kind of create maybe a sparse environment. It's just such a, a weird juxtaposition to talking about like Batman Returns you know like where it's so lush where this is just so like it's it's just so meaning like and it adds some of the menace that you would start hearing in more and more of Elfman's work with Burton especially in the 2000s I mean there are some early hints of like the genuinely dark tones that you'd start getting out of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory for instance but yeah there's there's nothing especially remarkable here But if I want to close out our score discussion on something that we do find a little more engaging, (laughs) Mars Attacks. Oh, yeah. Which is Elfman using Warner Brothers full budget to make the silliest, most 50 sci-fi score possible. It kind of, honestly, like, sounds a little bit like the Simpsons theme. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what I got from it. So it has that kind of, like... Uh, nonsensical feeling to it. Um, and the whole time we were watching, I was like, gosh, this this sounds like something out of The Simpsons. Well, and it has those weird, I haven't the slightest idea what you call the instrument, but those vibrating bows where you can get that sort of undulating, almost alien kind like, of sound. Wah, 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 wah. Yes. <laughs> and you can hit it up into higher yeah. frequencies. You know exactly the sound of trying do, to convey I do, but I couldn't tell words. you what the instrument is either. Exactly. <laughs> But you get that sound, and that to me is a very, like, that's what I hear in my head when I think of, like, little green men, you know? Mm -hmm. And the score nails that down, down to the fact that it has all those, like, shrieking strings and a lot of the, like, really manic ends of Elfman's sound going on. Oh, yeah, it's it's pure tension for the most part. Um, And, but I I think we're... It, we can't talk about the music of this movie without talking about the most important music of this movie. Slim Whitman's Indian Love Call, I think oh, yes. you mean. Oh, yes. Now, when I, you know, think about alien invasions, I usually think of missiles, you know, or like, um, you know, right pulsar rifles or, or uh, um, you know, grenades, anything, artillery. But um, Slim Whitman. Wasn't in my uh, you know, <laughs> in my arsenal, but I guess it's going to have to be from here going forward. I mean, and, I think, and I think... yet to this day, when I watch alien movies, I'm like, "Have you tried the song?" <laughs> like, exactly. Maybe it, it probably won't work, but have you tried it? You never know. I mean, what if Ripley had just put it on at the end of Alien? She wouldn't even had to like use the eject sequence. She could have just blown up the 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 alien at the end. Well, I hope we use that when we, you know eventually get attacked by alien life forces i i think it's definitely somewhere in the government's uh you know detail they're like all right we got nuclear and that could destroy the cities uh what indian love call it's like right next to who killed jfk use this song when aliens attack (laughs) well and i do love you know if we're going to talk about like the sound of burton and especially with the like the 50s kitsch of this movie Everything about this song is so perfect for the yeah. Tonys trying to strike. The yodeling, 
the goofy, like, forlorn songbird sound of the 40s that it's evoking, you know. Even, like, that overproduced slide guitar yeah. that's underneath it somehow fits perfectly. Now, I just looked up Slim Whitman on Spotify. Uh, do you want to... We all know that Indian Love Call is number one. It's the most top-played, uh, you know, song for him. Do you want to take a guess at how many listens? I haven't the foggiest. Just take just take a guess. It's a lot. 20 mil. No, no, no not that. that's a lot, lot. <laughs> uh, a million, uh, 50,720. And okay. for reference, his next most listened to song is All Kinds of Everything with only f- 440,000. So Indian Love Call, still a huge hit. It's his bop. Yeah. Yeah, like the truly hot slim whitman track in the streets of our time is indian love call <laughs> yeah truly hot i love that yeah yeah which so, hey I, I would attribute that success easily to mars attacks I'm oh sure, absolutely you know. well and you know on the note of you know bringing slim back into the cultural zeitgeist i think that's where we bring episode four to a close for the week <laughs> i want to thank both of you for joining me I want to thank Kat Blackard and also Michael Rothman sitting directly across from me right now for all of the continued support at Consequence Podcast Network. As always, you can stay tuned to our Facebook page, Facebook slash Filmography Podcast, for all future announcements and updates about not only upcoming episodes, but about what we're going to be doing for forthcoming seasons and what have you. You can also, again, follow us and leave us a review on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Podchaser, or wherever else you find your podcast content. Uh, Next week, we will be talking Burton and Stop Motion, and that will also be the fifth and final episode of Filmography Tim Burton. So tune in for the grand finale. We might light off fireworks. Someone might die. (laughs) Who who can say? You know what? We have to build intrigue. Just go with me on this. So join us next Thursday, April 25th, for the final installment of Filmography Tim Burton. Now, as always, we are not the only Consequence Podcast Network program you can enjoy. You can also check out This Must Be the Gig, Kyle Meredith with The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast, Halloweenies, which is currently in its Nightmare on Elm Street season, and much more. You can find me at D. Suzanne Mayer on Twitter, and you can find all of my work at Consequences Sound. Now, where can the goodly people online find the two of you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at SRKDoll. That's S-R-K-D-A-L-L, because my name is really fucking long, <laughs> um, where I just post uh, lots of stuff I shouldn't buy. Um, recently, a $40 Gremlins uh, stuffed animal. <laughs> yeah. that you currently sleep on. Yeah, he's my pillow. He's great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, check in on um, various things I shouldn't be spending money on. Instead, I should be spending money on food and uh, heat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should be doing that for sure. You should also uh, follow us on uh, The Fifth Dimension, a Twilight Zone podcast, because you run those accounts as well. Yeah, so, I do. Yeah, you know. I, I make a mean Twilight Zone meme if I don't say so myself. Yeah, and she also makes a, a mean Losers Club, or should I say Stephen King meme, and also some horror memes, because uh, you run the, the Instagram some of them too. So. Yeah, man, you're tooting my own horn over I am, here. and uh, <laughs> that's a great segment for me. Uh, uh, you could find me at, at Michael Rothman, that's on Twitter. Uh, you could find me on uh, Instagram if you want to see one innocuous movie a day, uh, because that's what I'm currently doing for the, at least the next two years, because I decided to do this ridiculous uh, 
thousand movie challenge. It's overwhelming. It's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, but you can also find me uh, again uh, with, with Sammy at the the Fifth Dimension, the Twilight Zone podcast. We're going to be covering all of Jordan Peele's uh, current season, and it's we're on the fourth episode this week. Yeah. So uh, very exciting. Uh, and then also on uh, the Losers Club and Halloweenies. So um, we're going to be doing Dream Warriors next for Halloweenies, which is going to be fun and. Uh, we just finished the dark half on the Losers Club, so lots of stuff going on. Good shit happening over at CPN. Oh, yeah. Exciting. Filmography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcasts at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded, produced, and engineered in Chicago, Illinois by me, Dominic Suzanne Mayer, and we will see you all next week for our final episode. Consequence Podcast Network.